Welcome to the Truthiverse. My name is Brendan D. Murphy. This is where we unleash truth and freedom with no holds barred, no fear, and no limits. Come and evolve beyond the matrix with me and thrive, not just survive. This is a realm of empowering, uncommon awareness. This is my Truthiverse. All right, hello, and welcome to this episode of Truthiverse. This week, I'm joined by my fellow truth seeker and well he's a pioneer in the field of sound healing and dna activation also a pioneering artist very well recognized internationally respected artist sol luckman sol good to have you here mate thanks for having me brendan it's uh, nice to catch up a little bit we were catching up before we came on air yeah yeah it is it's good we don't get to do a lot but um this is a good chance and it'll be a a slightly uh longer longer version of a catch-up which is good um, and you've just published a book, which is about the fallen goddess. And so apparently this is this is really catching on. And we're going to talk about that and dig into it. So Sol, <clears throat> which I should have mentioned, was uh, also a, a very respected author and writer. And he's got several books out there, which I recommend, including um, Conscious Healing and Potentiate Your DNA. And so this latest one is about the fallen goddess. Let's let's dig into that, Sol. Um, where would you like to start? Maybe, I mean, how did you end up writing about this in the first place? Well, I, I'll be happy to, to speak to that. I, I wanted to say the book is actually not published yet. It's, it's going to be officially released on Sunday or, or the 20th uh, in, the, in our hemisphere. Um, so that's the solstice. And I thought if you're going to write a book on the goddess, you, you need to release it either on the solstice or the equinox. There's just no, no ifs, ands, and buts about it. Yeah. Okay. Fitting. Very fitting. All right. So it's not quite released yet. It's about to be released. <laughs> right. Right. So people have been reading uh, galleys, galley copies and, and excerpts and listening to interviews about it. I've given a, a, a huge number of interviews. I just interviewed with Chef Pete last week and he's going to be putting that up in the next day or two. That was really fun. And awesome. uh, gosh, Michael Jaco and I had a great conversation, Mark Atwood, uh, Nicholas Vinyaman. It's been great. I mean, it's, the interest has been very encouraging and, and the, the um, just the comments that I've gotten from the interviews and from people reading the excerpts and dipping their toes in this concept, I, I realized that I, you know, there's some energy in this and it's, it's pretty darn exciting. Mm, for sure, for sure. So tell us about what's the, the thrust of the, of the book and we'll, we'll dig into like the, the, the nitty gritty of it, but yeah, give us the broad strokes of it. All right. So uh, the backstory is that it came to me in a very strange way in late 2019. I've told the story a number of times, so if you've heard this before, forgive me, but I, I went to bed one night, and I, I remember being kind of tired. I wanted to get some sleep, and instead of sleeping, I felt like I was plugged into a, an electrical socket, and I began just downloading this entire novel plot, and it was a, about, of all insanely timed things, a, a viral pandemic resulting in mass vaccination, which I call in the novel, giving way to mass illness and death and ultimately a kind of dystopian future. And that all came through to me in 2019 before COVID even broke in the West. Wow. Okay. So that I was working on this book as the pandemic happened and literally responding to it in real time or, or observing it in real time. I already had the plot. <laughs> yeah. I was literally writing it as it happened. Wow. 
And so it, complete with, I mean, the same kind of, uh, you know, induced genocide, induced genocide we're seeing, all of it. Uh, and, you know, I, I do have a witness that, that this was the case. Lee, my partner, uh, whom you know, uh, I told her the whole story the following day as we had a bike ride. She was amazed. She was, uh, she had, she was kind of flabbergasted that all of this came through in one night and she knew me and I, I began writing it and, uh, and stayed pretty faithful to that. It was a different writing experience for me. I, I, over the years, I've gotten a little more relaxed in where and how I can write. I'm very noise sensitive. So, so it was really odd that I, I could write this one sort of in the melee of the kitchen table with a homeschooling son and business going on and everything in the world. <laughs> so I, I just, just came streaming out. It was the most effortless thing. And, you know, it didn't even take that long to write a chapter. And then I would, I would read it to Lee very often right then and there or, or later. And she was like, oh my God, that's incredible. It just keeps coming out of you. I can't believe it. So that was a, an interesting experience, just the, how it came through. And then the actual experience of writing it, it took me in, in the neighborhood of a year uh, to finish it. And I, I, I've said before that, that I believe that, uh, that Callie the Destroyer, and that's Callie with a C, by the way, not, not a K. Callie the Destroyer has the potential to, to, to come to be regarded as a historically significant novel. And that's not because I, I wrote it or even because of its literary quality, which nevertheless, I think is pretty good. But it highlights a, a, a little known yet extremely important fact, and that's that its primary subject involves the single most censored story in the history of humanity. And, and obviously, you know, we have to go, well, what's this most censored story? <laughs> <laughs> right. So I was just pausing, you know, give me a little, give me a little, uh, throw me a bone, you know, Brendan. Um, that is the Gnostic telling of what I contend could very well be the true nature and origins of the earth and humanity. According to uh, John Lamb Lash, who wrote uh, a wonderful book several years ago called Not in His Image, he first retold this, this story in the modern era, this narrative, the fallen goddess scenario, uh, scenario is what he calls it. Mm -hmm. And he claims that this is the real reason for the holy wars, the inquisitions against uh, pagans and goddess worshiping and shamanic peoples everywhere that has resulted in you know a genocide count if you look up look over the years a genocide count that's probably in the high millions mm. right so it, this was the most not just censored but the most dangerous story to even know anything about definitely yep 100 percent. and it also seems to be i would offer it may very well be the real reason that genocide, the, the assisted variety is still happening right now with what's going on here with operation, what I call operation warped speed. <laughs> yeah. Right. And this whole goddess thing is, I call it a rabbit hole full of rabbit holes. And what it does is it, it, it singles out. I'm going to, I'm going to contend it singles out the source of evil as we experience it. There's a whole, you know, uh, a subdivision of theology called uh, ponderology, which is the study of evil. And to me, the goddess, the fallen goddess scenario uh, tells a, what I would consider a plausible story for what evil actually is on earth. Okay. And who, who our real enemies are. 
who are the who are the puppet masters manipulating the strings of monarchies and governments and corporations and religions and armies in order to coordinate this multi-generational, multi-millennial, inhuman agenda sub- to subjugate and eventually destroy us. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I guess you're leading into the Archon, uh, the Archontic discussion. Absolutely. I mean, we, we say things like deep state or new world order, cabal, Illuminati, and people sling these words around. And most of the time, they don't even know really what they mean anymore. They've gotten to be almost uh, just watered down terms. But, but they do they do point at who who the controllers are even if we don't even if these are shadowy people the deep state the the uh, invisible enemy whatever you want to call it mm. but to but to these ancient gnostic um, people whose uh, some of whose texts were rediscovered in the 1940s in, in a cave and or in a, well, yeah it was a kind of cave in Nagamati Egypt uh, the, the Gnostics' teachings were so threatening to the early Catholic Church, and, and I would say presumably true for that reason, <laughs> they were systematically destroyed until they were basically erased from our collective memory. But for the Gnostics, the, the ultimate powers behind the terrestrial tyrants that we might be able to identify are called archons. Now, a lot of people have probably heard of that term and there's a lot of disagreement over what it means because it can mean just leader. Yeah. Yeah. Or a government official or that kind of thing. But I would point out that government itself means something to govern the mind. Yeah. Yeah. According to John Lash, the archons are the ultimate mind parasites. They have the, they're these extraterrestrial beings, entities, that have the ability to enter the human mind and essentially infect it to the extent that people become archontified. And then they go about fulfilling the agenda of the archons, which is anti-human and transhuman in the extreme. So when we look at the leaders that have been, the so-called leaders that have been flushed out of their 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 comfort zone and forced to reveal their true nature in this whole thing that we've been living through for the last year and a half i would say those are our quantified people because i don't even think they're people anymore to be totally honest not in any meaningful sense no no that's right not in, in the sense of you know a human who's connected to their heart and their intelligence and intuition right and that's what really you know means something they're basically transmogrified transhumanized tools of an extraterrestrial binary intelligence mm-hmm. when you say an extraterrestrial binary intelligence can you can you flesh that out a bit for us yeah sure um I, this is a quote I, I i read recently it's from the books I'll give you a little sneak peek of the of the book uh, the the main character is is callie and the the plot takes place uh, the, the story takes place in a futuristic dystopian society that happens if we don't correct what's going on right now. That's the whole concept. Callie is a teenager. She's uh, 15 turning 16. She's a huge pop star in this world that's sort of a Hunger Games-esque society. Uh, Throw in some Handmaid's Tale and maybe some other dystopian, you know, Fahrenheit this and, you know, 
uh, Brave New World that, and you, you, you end up with this, this, this world that I've created. <clears throat> and she's having a, Callie's having a conversation with someone whose name will have to remain, uh, she'll have to remain anonymous because that would give too much away. But I'm going to read this little conversation between the two. Okay. So, um, uh, so this person that she's speaking to is, says that the Illuminati are the willing, no, this, all right. The Illuminati are the willing terrestrial servants of the Lord Archon who demands everything from pedophilia and child sacrifice to war and chaos as offerings that create louche. And then Callie says, never heard of it. <laughs> louche is a hyperdimensional energy given off by the human soul when traumatized. The archons parasitically feed on it. Think of it as their simulacrum of Kundalini. Why is seemingly everything the archons do counterfeit? because they lack the capacity to create anything truly original. In their insane jealousy, they can only mimic the divinely instilled creative capacity of the anthropos, which is the Gnostic term for the human, the human race, basically. So are the Illuminati still technically even human? That is a probing question. If the definition of a human is a child of the goddess in possession of an immortal soul and the ability to invent, the answer would most certainly be no. And then I'm going to skip down. And Kelly asks, don't the Illuminati realize they're just pawns in someone else's game? Even if they realize this, I will wager they are beyond caring. They have been completely integrated into the AI. The AI. The artificial intelligence. This is another term for the archontic hive mind. It is a binary operating system that imitates the many shades of gray characteristic of human intelligence, only to end up a circumscribed parody of it that processes everything strictly in terms of black and white. Good versus evil, man versus woman, rich versus poor, east versus west, liberal versus conservative, take your pick. Anytime you see dichotomies that ignore the human experiment's infinite nuances, you can be certain you are encountering the archontic mind. I like that. I love it actually. And the, la the, the last thought that came to me there was speaking of that, that black and white worldview that the character is referring to was that is exactly how um, any fundamentalist of any religious persuasion, but particularly the Catholics and the Christians that I encounter even today, right now in the truth movement, um, they have that very black and white binary um, Manichaean kind of, worldview they think that if you're not if you don't believe exactly what they believe and see reality the way they see it that you're working you're in league with the devil kind of thing right right or yes or you're just trying to divide the movement or whatever yeah yeah because you know it's all black and white right yep yep so so you've got some scholars they, they've been unable to really try on the implications of this idea that that john lash uh, forwarded that the archons are actually these extraterrestrials and it's it's there in the in the gnostic writings he's not making this up he is reading into some things a little bit but he's not just creating out of thin air uh, mm -hmm. there's this is a this is a viable interpretation of these texts that there are these extraterrestrial mind parasites that control humanity but then some more mainstream more 3d more left brain whatever you want to call it may, maybe more fundamentalist in some ways 
interpreters have, have had a really hard time. And then Gnosticism has been co-opted by Christianity as if it were some kind of early Christian sect, when in yeah. fact the Gnostics were massive critics of the early Christians. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so Lash really, you know, in my interpretation, leaves little room for doubt that by Archon, the Gnostics meant an extraterrestrial race of essentially immortal thought parasites who over the many centuries have controlled our leaders, their terrestrial proxies through a, a type of, uh, of mind control that operates through reality simulation. And if you think about that with what's going on now, when we can't even tell if something is a deep fake, we can't even tell in this country whether we have an actual person in the role of our quote unquote president. Yeah. It's yeah. not even clear if it's an actual human being or a CGI or a series of actors in masks. It's not clear. And if you if that's not archontic, nothing is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it would seem that we are we are in the in the apex of the of the Ar archon's ability to create a simulated reality. Yeah, you know, yeah. you know, Baudrillard was a was a philosopher. He is a philosopher. I think he's still around, and he wrote about uh, simulacra, simulation. He compared the whole world to basically like Disneyland. America, in particular, was like Disneyland, and that has become even even more true today than it was, you know, decades ago when he wrote that. There's a scene in <laughs> there's a scene in the Matrix when. Neo is looking for a pirated disc that he's made for the folks have come to him. Well, he's made it for, I forget the character's name, but it's, it's uh, something he's made that's illegal. And he opens up Baudrillard's book on simulacra, it, which is hollow. It's not really a book. It's a hiding place. And he takes the disc and he gives it to the person. Mm. Is that simulacra? <laughs> it's great. You know, it's just perfect. But the, we, so basically it's, it means that we live in, you know, we live in falsehood inside lies, inside untruths, and it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. It's many layered. It's like an onion. So, so true. And that's one of the, th the hardest things to, to convey to people. Um, even a lot of people in, who are in the truth movement and have been for a while is that, you know, for example, like this, the scandemic, it, you've got to drill down through all these layers of modern mythology, like modern medical myth, all these layers of illusion to get to the bottom, the foundation of, for example, virology, which it turns out to be just complete and utter bullshit and like the worst possible junk science you could ever imagine. But, Ain't true. but you know, that's like one example of just how, how layered it's become, you know, it's not just a scandemic because, well, you know, PCR tests are unreliable. It's the whole thing, every level and layer of it is just rubbish. <laughs> well, it's so true. I, I wrote an article on my blog at, at snoozetoawaken.com and I was introduced, I mean, I've written many articles on this subject during this whole scandemic, but basically my conclusion was that at this point with all the information that we have from Dr. Kaufman and Dr. Cowan and other people, uh, Stefan Lanka, you know, that anyone spreading this narrative that a contagious virus called SARS-CoV-2 occurred either naturally or was engineered in a Wuhan lab is guilty of perpetuating humanity's enslavement to a scientific absurdity. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, it's just absolutely amazing. But that, again, is, is absolutely archontic. Mm.
but there's, there's just no middle ground. Either you can see through that or you, you can be Mike Adams or Dell Bigtree and you cling to the scientific fiction. I call these people half truthers. <laughs> <laughs> they're not even truthers. They're half truthers. Yeah. 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 Okay. I love it. So, so going back to your, your narrative and, and the, the archons, um, I mean, let's let's pick up that thread again. So Lash did an amazing job, by the way, as you've been saying, you know, of, of bringing this out and, and interpreting and reinterpreting. Um, and he's continued to do it since since then, because that book came out and I think it was 2006. And right, then, right. Yeah. And he's gone in some directions that I'm not very comfortable with. And I, I have a, a kind of uh, acknowledgement slash disclaimer at the back of, <laughs> of my book. So. Um, you know, we could perhaps talk about some of those things, but I would rather focus on the good here and, and what, you know, he, he contributed that I think was rational and helpful um, mm. uh, before, before things kind of went off the rails a little mm. bit. <clears throat> yeah. So, so the, okay. So going back to the story, the ultimate target of, of the archons, uh, it, w- it would seem is not uh, so much humanity uh, we're kind of what stands in the way of their their revenge on their mother who abandoned them essentially, and we're also we're also the archons half or brothers and sisters. There are older older siblings, which is very very strange because the goddess, the li- literal goddess Sophia, who created the human species in galactic center, she's this figure called an Aeon. She. Uh, created the human strain, the Anthropos, with her partner Thelite, and then through through uh, either uh, either on purpose or by accident, she fell out of galactic center and went spinning through space, and in her panic, inadvertently using kind of her shadow side as she was panicking, she created the Archons, mm-hmm. and so they appeared in our solar system first before before we did. Mm-hmm. Even though we had been designed earlier, our, our genetics had been designed earlier. So we are actually talking about Mother Earth. This is the fallen goddess, the one that the Catholics demonized in fallen women, you know, from Eve to Mary Magdalene, out of what I would contend is a, a kind of sick desire to separate the, the archontically hypnotized masses from their, their genuine power source in the sacred feminine. So what I did was I took Lash's very, very somewhat dry academic exposition of the fallen goddess scenario. I did take many, many creative and interpretive and interpretive liberties with it, but I recast it as a fast paced work of fiction in which the goddess and her consort Thelite are actually characters. Mm -hmm. And so um, Kelly with the C is is the goddess um in your in your novel but who is are you keeping the name of her consort uh on the download at the moment well let me read you let me read you the uh the uh the description from the back cover it's very very brief and this will this will give you a little more context for the the nature of the story so this is the description best friends check illegal lovers Check. Mythological entities? Check. Callie and Juice aren't discovering love. They've, they're discovering they've always been in love since the dawn of creation. 
In this page turner of a sci-fi tale set in, in an Orwellian future seated in the dystopian present, resistance to the archons appears futile. That is until the goddess and her consort spectacularly reappear straight out of ancient Gnosticism to take on the control matrix of the fatherland. Will the luminous child awaken in humanity before it's too late? Okay, I am, I am, you've got my attention. It sounds, <laughs> even just the back cover is riveting. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I, my, my son is in the process of making a, a, uh, um, a trailer for it using, using that text. And he was showing me what he was working on today. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. It's very interesting. I, I was very impressed. He, nice. he had kept it all on the, on the down low and, and wasn't sharing anything with me. But then he did share about the first half of it today. And it was like, okay, keep going. I hope this ends up being as good as the, you know, the second half ends up being as good as the first half. <laughs> it's always nice when your offspring are uh, technologically adept. <laughs> Oh, much more so than myself. I'm, I'm, I'm a Luddite. <laughs> I, uh, I, I can put my hand up there. <laughs> so another thing that would be worth sharing it, uh, would be the epigraph and the context for that a little bit, because the epigraph is the is really what in many ways defined the entire story. It's, it was my touchstone over and over again. And it's so profound and multi-layered, even though it's short, that I continue to learn from it. The um, it's it's taken from one of the Gnostic texts known as "On the Origin of the World," and in this quote, which really is an absolutely perfect description of this current historical moment right now, the one that we're in right now on this prison planet. <laughs> Sophia gives the following prophecy to the Lord Archon, who's also called the Demiurge. Now he think he thinks he's a god. He thinks he is God, and that he created everything that he sees but he's actually blind as in sightless and he's basically this overweening windbag <laughs> with, with very little power real power outside of his ability uh, to trick the human mind so this is what sophia uh, says to him before she before she finishes becoming the planet mm -hmm. all right so this is such a, a cosmic epic moment in this history she says you are mistaken blind one there is an immortal child of light who came into this realm before you and who will appear among your duplicate forms in your simulated world and in the consummation of all your works their entire deficiency of truth will be revealed and dissolved by this luminous child love it so one of the main themes of the book is is the luminous child and defining what that is and and also defining that in relation to the notion of the destroyer Callie the destroyer and defining or at least proposing a, a concept theory for where we go from here how we you know how we actually overcome the the archontic enslavement that we're facing the the the, the twin the twin pillars of their agenda, which is is domination and depopulation. Yeah, <clears throat> I don't think the depopulation specifically is mentioned in in the book as their twin their twin uh, their twin goals. It's quite clear that that is. I mean, it's never been as obvious as it is now. It's very obvious. Yep. Yep. So, I mean, without like you know spoiling 
what's in the book uh can we what you know can you touch on your strategy can you touch on you know can we talk about the luminous child uh the solutions this kind of thing yeah let's do that let's let's do it with reference to the epigraph because it's all in there it's just amazing so so she's she's calling the lord archon out as being blind and mistaken and actually his name i believe it's in aramaic is saklas which means fool sort of like blind fool right uh so you are mistaken blind one there is an immortal child of light so first of all an immortal one it's not just a a a a mortal being that we're talking about there's some kind of immortal child of light and either that's through generation via progeny more immortal in that way or or in some other way but in any case i like the word immortal in there and it, and it suggests that humanity survives there is an immortal child of light who came into this realm so we we designed this you know in the pleroma before you were even here and who will appear among your duplicate forms in your simulated world. And this is how I interpret it. Will appear among your archontified humans in your fake reality. And in the consummation of all your works, so when you think that you are going to succeed with your domination and depopulation agenda through the enslavement of these people's minds on a mass scale, their entire deficiency of truth will be two things revealed and then dissolved by this luminous child so i read this as as a kind of playbook for what's going on right now because of the way it came through to me mm -hmm. sort of inspired i I've, I've said in another interview that i i kind of feel like the goddess gave me this book and mm -hmm. you know sue me if you disagree with me or you think i'm being you know blasphemous <laughs> but in any case there it is so if you look at this revealed and dissolved by this luminous child we are in the revelation phase this is all the light that's being shined on their corruption their deceit their lies their agendas we haven't even gotten to the dissolution phase no now in terms of what the luminous child is Great question. I, I provide one, one, uh, one possibility in this novel, and it's a very interesting one. But even if, if the luminous child is simply an awakened humanity coming together, that is very powerful. Absolutely. 100%. That's kind of how I've had it in my mind, something along those lines. You know, a conscious awakened humanity is the divine child, the, uh, you know, the offspring of of uh the 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 aeons the eons in the pleroma such as sophia absolutely absolutely and yet there was some level of excitement even in, in in this reading that lash has given to the gnostic story this this is not the human species broadly defined the the broadly defined human species this is not our first rodeo we've we've been on many other planets versions of our experiment but they did something different with this one by putting the luminous child in it so there's something special about the luminous child and it suggests to me that it's not just 
an intellect, uh, we're not just discussing an intellectual awakening or even a heart awakening. We're discussing some kind of mutation of the species into something greater that is immortal. Which is what a lot of people, I mean, there's been a lot of sort of prophecy interpretation and, and conjecture around that, you know, people like David Wilcock are all, all, always pushing this kind of, this kind of narrative and, you know, like we are evolving and, you know, you've written about it. I've written about it. Um, you know, I've got a chapter on it in my book and I'm still working on my second one, which is sort of pushing in that direction. I think there's some, there may be something to it either, either it's a, it's a really intense sort of psychically gripping idea that we can't seem to to get past or let go of or maybe there's something really in there to it and i kind of feel like there is there is a seed of truth in there that there is a a mutation or a transformation of the of the human species going on as much as it's being you know devolving and destroyed and what have you right right i mean i you know in conscious healing the the first book i wrote on on regenetics this method method of sound healing that you and i are familiar with I, I quote uh, a biochemist, uh, Colm Kellerer is his name. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the transposition burst and how there is a plausible genetic, uh, genetic uh, phenomenon where you could see genes rearranging in the thousands. And it would be enough to actually transmute a biological creature in real time. Mm into something else you know and he, he actually even as a scientist he theorizes this might be the mechanism that explains various uh, claims of light body activation and that kind of thing in various places in the world that's interesting mm. um, you know do we have hard evidence of that phenomenon no but we do have a lot of information that that it, it's plausible and we have a lot of uh, of stories both both ancient and modern to suggest that it it may be real yeah yep okay so the the, the luminous child leaves a lot of uh, a lot of room for conjecture interesting conjecture and speculation yeah yeah i mean i definitely wrote the book to to open up discussion open up thinking not to solve all of these problems or answer all of these questions because I don't pretend to have all of the answers but I think if you look at the Gnostic texts and you read what they're actually saying and then you compare it to what's going on in the world today and you allow yourself to see how this explanation of reality actually does explain evil and what we're up against I mean there there's a lot of boxes that it checks much more so than something like revelation which you know people are always pointing to the book of revelation as if it says anything yeah but it's just gobbledygook in my estimation well they project that what they want to see into it so (laughs) right right but there's but but it's got so many different interpretations whereas you can say simulated world Mm. you you know your duplicate forms and everything and look at that in relation to the story of the archons and the goddess and it actually lines up Mm. yeah that's right so did you um uh i have a couple i wanted to touch on the the lash thing but maybe we're not quite there yet um where he's taken things that maybe you you don't necessarily feel like it's sort of on point but but let's like let's flesh out whatever else you need to flesh out as far as um you know your take on on the narrative and um and we also you mentioned um 
the language of the birds as well was something we were going to talk about, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a major theme in, in the book. Okay. It's, tell us about that. What is the language of the birds? How does it fit into the book? Let's drill into that. Right. Well, I wrote about the language of the birds in, in both of my books on regenetics and, and much more so in conscious healing than in potentiate your DNA, but I do mention it in potentiate your, D, your DNA. And I propose that the sounds, these vowels that, that we're using when we, when we activate people's DNA are a modern day application of an ancient sacred language based in vowels, vowels only called the language of the birds. I also loved King Kerry's work on the bird tribes. So I brought the bird tribes with the language of the birds into Cali the Destroyer and made that part of this reality that I'm, that I'm uh, building out. Okay. Okay. So, and I have read Ken Carey's book, so um, I know what you're referring to. Let's, let's, um, let's talk a bit more about the vowel sounds and, and, you know, what's your take on, on this? Let's, let's really go in there. Cause I'm, I'm interested in this. I mean, it's a long running subject and we hear um, I've, I've heard people talk about language of the birds over years now, and everyone seems to have their own idea of what that means. And a lot of it seems to be quite nebulous and vague. So if we can make it less nebulous, I'm definitely interested in that. <laughs> sure. Um, let me uh, let me pull up a document if you don't mind. Please do. Um, well, I don't have to. I can do this from memory. Um, the the person that I whose work I, I like on the language of the birds who wrote about this is is um, William Henry. I oh, am. Yeah. And I mean, he he does a good bit on this topic, and so. Uh, I would challenge anybody to do as much research as Henry and, and come up with, with information on the language of the birds. Uh, you know, people are always going to have their, their opinions. And, but he, you know, he does a lot of work in his books. So you can look up, I forget which books this, this topic uh, is most prevalent in, but he, he touches on it in multiple books. And okay. it's this ancient language. Again, it's, it's all vowels. And the vowels are being used to, to heal, to raise consciousness, to evolve the, the, not only the mind and the spirit, but perhaps the body. It, he theorizes that it was used by ancient masters that are recorded in our, you know, major religious texts, for example. So, you know, for him, it has a very long and illustrious history but it's like so many things that's been suppressed i mean you know wouldn't you just like to take a toodle through the vatican library and see what all they stole from the library at alexandria and oh. read all about the language of the birds one of these days that's right yeah it'd be amazing yeah so so not having that those of us who are interested in this kind of thing have often had to sort of go into uh, a right brain meditative space i hesitate to call it channeling i really hate that word but uh, and bring this stuff through kind of out of the ethers. You know, there is a morphic field. Sheldrake has written about this. There's all this information out there in, in the morphic field. And if you want to call it the Akashic record, that's fine too. But I think that's a little problematic. Anyway, um, so that's what happened with me when I got really sick, as you know, from, from vaccination. You know, I was an early... 
canary in the coal mine and I got really, really sick. And when I went down this shamanic path and, and had all of these metaphysical, esoteric, spiritual experiences, it culminated in bringing through these vowels that we applied to this healing methodology that made me well when nothing else had. And I had tried everything under the sun practically at that time. Mm. Yeah. So to me, the proof is that it works. It's really powerful and it's much more powerful than anything else I've ever encountered in terms of energy healing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can say the same thing um, as someone who's, you know, done it and received it and also as a practitioner as well. Um, it's definitely unique for sure. So what I thought was would, would be really fun is to fictionalize the language of the birds as a sacred language being spoken by people who are still in connection with the goddess. Uh-huh. And to map it back towards towards that, because the goddess, even in the Gnostic texts, is described as the Henry does a lot of good work on this too. Although he talks about seven vowels in connection with the language of the birds. But my contention has been that that English is the distillation of all of these vowels. I think there's something like 22 vowels in Hebrew, for example, micro vowels. Mm -hmm. But in English, it all shows up and you can sing them in a certain way. And when you go from one vowel to another, if you go, you're, you're getting all those micro vowels. Yeah. So all you got to do is sing the vowels and you get all the ancient micro vowels. That's, that's my term. I don't, I'm not sure if that's an actual linguistic term. So if you're, a, you know, a PhD out there, forgive me. <laughs> but uh, so that is that is the language of the birds and it has to be the right vowels sung in the right way and at the right frequency for maximum results. Mm. So this is, this is, this goes, goes into all of my nonfiction work, as you well know, but it was really fun to, to write about it as if it were that ancient language still in youth somewhere in Cali, the destroyer. And, and also explore how powerful that is in different applications beyond what i've developed for example mm -hmm, for sure it it just occurred to me i mean we've had in the sort of i don't know new age community if you want to call it that um maybe that's not a good term but uh there's this language of this this light language that people talk about and i'm wondering if there might be some sort of uh <laughs> Can we, can we draw a long bow? Is there a connection there? Do you think, have you heard of this phenomenon? Yeah, I thought maybe that's what they're referring to though. Very few people actually end up <clears throat> retracing that concept back to sound mm. and fewer, fewer people still actually talk about vowels as being part of that. So I think maybe some people are thinking that and maybe a lot of people are sensing the language of the birds in some ways and there may be they may be calling it the language of light or the light language without really knowing what they're talking about yeah yeah interesting you had ken carey in one of his books you know talking about this something like this language in the future when people would literally just sing songs he called them songs of distinction and we have songs of distinction that we sing in regenetics mm. that are that are an, that's an homage to to carey but he talked about how in the future people would be able to sing a song to someone's ailing liver, for example, and have it just regenerate its cells. Mm. I mean, that sounds awfully shamanic. <laughs> yep, absolutely. 
you know, and he's the one writing about the bird tribes and all of that. So, you know, there are many, many um, deep roots in all of this material. I mean, Cali in some ways is the culmination of a lot of my research over, over the years uh, and uh, the, the, the amalgamation of, of that. Well, it sounds like, uh, it sounds like people are really going to enjoy it at the very least. It sounds like it's a very, very compelling and um, possibly exciting read. I'm, <laughs> I'd love to say that I could just pull up, pull up your, a copy of your book and sit on the couch for a few hours, but um, that won't be happening anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Not, not, uh, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't want to say too many things about your personal life, but you're, you're a busy man at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what it's like, but um. Yeah, Ken, the Ken Carey material was was a highly, in some quarters anyway, very highly respected channeled work. Some people thought extremely highly of it. Absolutely. Although he also hated the word channeling. Mm. <laughs> yeah. but, but I mean, you know, it's hard to say what it is. If that's, if that's not channeling, then what is? I mean, you know, it's very, very difficult. Mm. So I, I think sometimes people have experiences that they 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 subjectively feel one way about and they just feel that the language is not adequate to describe it yeah for example you know this whole thing that happened with lee and myself when we were in brazil and these lights shined on us and we got these codes that started coming through these vowel codes language of the birds all of that you know i never really thought about that as a contactee experience until until um, Greg uh, Carlwood interviewed me a couple years ago on the Higher Side Chats and described me as a contactee. <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, I can see why you would say that. That's not really how I interpreted that, you know, and, I, and, I don't, and I'm not really that comfortable with that. But sure, let's go with it. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that's, that, that opens up the discussion on, on that, those kinds of anomalous experiences and, and what they are which we we never really end up with a firm answer as to what they are because you can interpret them through so many different lenses um right right and, and you know that's just what we do but that seems to be all we all we can do it's like what is the ultimate nature of that experience i mean i don't know other than obviously you you were given a lot of information and um where exactly or what exactly that came from um i'm not i don't have the answer but it, right, yeah, right. I can. I can definitely see how you could say, like, if you if you have a broader, I don't know, look at or take on on you know contact the contact phenomenon um, as a, as a sort of if you like an interdimensional or transdimensional kind of a uh, phenomenon, then you could kind of I guess interpret what happened with you as one of those things. Like you know, you see medieval artworks with UFOs in them and it beaming beaming light down into um, a woman's belly kind of thing. It's like well. <laughs> this is yeah what do you do with that what do you do there's something very very strange experiences have persisted throughout the centuries and the millennia um and we don't know exactly um how to necessarily talk about them but yeah contact is kind of you know in a way makes sense well the whole the whole field of ufology is very problematized by the archontic narrative mm -hmm. because if you if you accept that the archons are these incredibly wily thought parasites that paint these fake narratives, then we cannot accept as being absolutely true anything we hear about ETs. 
Yeah. I'm not saying that ETs don't exist, I and mean, we're talking about ETs here, but I'm saying if the Archons control this solar system, and there's reason to believe that the Archons are at least somewhat higher dimensional, then they're not going to let a bunch of ETs just parade in and out of here very easily. You would have to have probably very high level ETs showing up who could get through their, uh, their radar. So a lot of things you hear about secret space programs and people jetting all around to these other planets and everything in the world. I don't, I don't buy a lot of it. Mm -hmm. I just don't. You know, I used to be more open to that, but as time has gone by and listening to David Wilcock and Corey Good, I, I'm just, I'm kind of on the outside looking in now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, we all are. <laughs> unless, <laughs> unless we're one of the people who are, you know, on the inside, we're all on the outside looking in trying to figure out what Well, that's are. true, but who are these insiders? And, you know, are they just our quantified people or have they been fed information from our quantified people and it's just all a bunch of lots? Yeah. One of the problems we have is just the, the tendency for humans to get muddled and confused and to engage in really distorted thinking. Um, and then even if you are an insider, if you're functioning through those distortions, that's, that's a problem. Absolutely. I mean, the only thing that should be muddled is a good cocktail. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. I haven't had one of them for a while. Um. <laughs> I'm writing a cocktail book. For real? Yeah. Oh wow. I've become an amateur mixologist. Okay. <laughs> Things you do in, with <laughs> with your free time. <laughs> Call it downtime. So Saul Luckman, man of leisure. <laughs> man of leisure, international man of mystery and leisure. <laughs> okay, you you got me by surprise with that. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Well, it's, it's just part of my alchemical personality. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, where do you want to, where do you want to go with the, where do you want to take the discussion at this point? Is there anyone in particular? Well, I don't know. Do you have any other questions or uh, did you have any notions about that? I, I, I've said a lot, you know, in a short period of time, I've certainly given people a lot of food for thought. So, yeah. You did touch on uh, directions that Lash went that you weren't necessarily comfortable with. Well, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to be overly critical of someone to whom I'm very indebted. You know, mm. what, that's, I don't want to, what is it? Kick the, look the gift horse in the mouth or kick the gift horse in the mouth. So I will say, he, you know, he, he ended up doing something like this, uh, this war party, for example that was you know the calico war party oh okay okay i don't know about that yeah and and essentially he was just calling for people to engage in vandalism against the deep state and that kind of thing and all manner of things and i just didn't feel that there was a single thing enlightened about about that strategy whatsoever and it really really made me question his state of mind frankly yeah okay. so so you know um you know and, and maybe that was a temporary thing. I haven't really looked into what he's doing with that in a very long time. And I'm also aware that brilliant people can have, you know, can have quirks and that kind of thing. So I'm not, I'm not trying to be very, you know, too judgmental there, but, but that, that really crossed a line for me that I, I wasn't comfortable with. Okay. So it's not so much about the, the actual, the research that he's done or doing. 
Oh, yeah. I, there's many things I disagree with, even with all of that. Uh, or, or not, disagree, maybe. Like, he has certain interpretations of, of DNA and, and uh, what it is and what it does and what the nature of a bioenergy and that kind of thing that I don't agree with. He, he's also, you know, a kind of strident anti-salvationalist, you know, and yet he talks about humanity kind of anthropos 2.0 and that kind of thing. So it's it, the idea that humanity could evolve into a, another version of itself is there. And yet anybody else talking about it, like the light body or anything like that, is just uh, a monotheistically uh, blindfolded uh, lost person. Right. Yeah. OK. OK. Sort of okay. like so, so there's lots of contradictions if you if you listen to him, even though he's also really brilliant and not in his image, I think everybody should read. I mean, mm. I think it should just be required reading. It's that brilliant and that important. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I really actually, I found one of them, I mean, there's a lot about that book that's amazing and super, super useful. Um, but the, the point that he makes and, and drives home about uh, Gnosticism not being an offshoot of early Christianity that actually preceded it is actually extremely important because that, that is a whole perspective shift and flipping, flipping the, the narrative completely. Um, and I probably, he's probably right. I mean, when you look at the way that history has been hijacked by um, the church and, you know, re rewritten in their image, <laughs> so to speak, um, of course, they're going to turn the narrative, uh, in, invert the truth. They'll turn it on its head, which is the world we live in, the world of inversion. Um, so exactly. that's that a, is the archontic mind at work. Those inversions yeah. are, are, are a, a function of the archontic mind or an evidence and a function. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of good value um, as far as that goes as well, which... Well, think... yeah, because so you had these Gnostics who were these goddess-worshipping goddess peoples who had been communing with the goddess, according to Lash, for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. And they were there when these early monotheistic religions appeared. Mm. And they went, uh-oh, that's the archons infiltrating the human mind. And they tried to warn these early church fathers about this. And they were called Gnostics, which means know-it-all. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a, a nice term or anything like that. And that mm. stuck because, you know, the, the victors always tell the, tell the stories, write the histories, of course. Mm. Uh, so they were, their, their suggestions were, were categorically um, denied and, and belittled. And eventually when Gnosticism resurfaced somewhat miraculously in the 20th century through the recovery of these ancient text fragments. And unfortunately we are just talking about text fragments. The um, I'm trying to think where I was going with that. It was a good point. I was going to make a good point. Oh um, yeah. You had people like Elaine Pagels putting out the Gnostic gospels <laughs> as if these were early Christian writings. <laughs> You know, it, and it, it just did a tremendous disservice to what Gnosticism actually was and, and could be. And then you have all of these people now going around calling themselves Gnostic Christians, <laughs> yeah. which is an absolute oxymoron. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you when you realize that the Gnostics, from what we've, you know, the information we have, they were extremely critical of of the early Christian um, dogma and the the irrational, bizarre, sort of mutant nature of it, 
Um, to then call yourself a Gnostic Christian, you couldn't get a better or bigger contradiction in terms. Yeah, and it's a per- that's a perfectly archontic phrase. It's it's mm-hmm. it has the kind it has qualities of inversion and and uh, senselessness, you know, while while appearing to say something. I mean, that's politician speak in some ways. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I'm a Gnostic Christian. That's right. Yeah. And meanwhile, yeah. you, ki- you, kill- you say, oh, I'm a Gnostic Christian, and then you kill off all the Gnostics while you... <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. so, uh, yeah, so the, again, Lash was the one who, who brought all that out into the open very, very importantly, and sort of contextualized what's been going on with this, this mass genocide campaign dating back a very long time, and all the Crusades and, and everything else that we've, that we've witnessed. So... To me, to put all of that into a, a kind of spectrum as part of an agenda uh, that's being carried out by some other type of mind that's not just a, a human mind, that makes all the sense in the world to me. I, I, I've said a number of times that this idea that this secretive group of human beings has over the centuries managed to carry out this nefarious agenda, blah, 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 is insane if you've ever just played the telephone game. <laughs> okay we're talking about something a million times more complex than the telephone game yeah so some other mind is what's carrying this out and it's communicating in with and utilizing these these human proxies these are quantified people that we see on our tvs all the time now mm-hmm. and i think it's if you know if people can grasp like just by way of help trying to help sort of understand the dynamic i mean if if you look at a belief as you know a mind parasite a belief as an entity that exists psychically like a thought form um you know we we all propagate these beliefs um and then they they kind of even if you stop believing in it there's still a like a latent psychic energy that exists um in the morphic field that can be tapped into again picked up again so, you know, humans come and go, but there's always that sort of that energy lurking in the background or that demiurgic kind of force or, or field um, that, that is maybe waiting to be reactivated or, or ever, ever active. Um, like we pass beliefs from generation to generation. But um, yeah, so it's, it's not that- Like germ theory. Like germ theory. <laughs> we, we infect each generation, each new generation with germ theory. Um, <laughs> Which is still just a theory, by the way. That's right. It's more more of a yeah, conjecture <laughs> and a scam. <laughs> Always be germ theory, right? You yeah, know about Lanka's new experiments have basically not only you know for the longest time germ theory has not been proven, but his latest experiments have disproven it. Yeah, yeah. Very exciting stuff. Yeah, he's he's destroyed virology single handedly. <laughs> yeah, and it'll take it a, a while to play out, but I think uh, virology is is you know, stick a fork in that one because it's done. Mm, mm. And it's, it's, um, it's brilliant news for humans, humanity, because that is obviously, you know, just the, the linchpin of this whole scam has been that, that superstition. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've said over and over again, I've got a little meme I created. It's the biggest enemy of humanity today isn't a virus. It isn't even those in power who act like viruses. It's the scientific fraud known as germ theory. Remove that and you take away our controller's ability to use health terrorism to control us. 
Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's such an art, archontic um, phenomenon as well, because it's a total inversion of reality. Like once, once and all in your mind. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's absurd. You know, this, this whole, all oh, these little packages of genetic material. Um, well, actually they, they come from inside you. You made it. Uh, it's not infecting you. You created it. And outside of your body, it's absolutely inert and useless. Yeah, the one thing I'll say about that in relation to Cali the Destroyer is that that I I thought long and hard about how I wanted to handle this notion of germ theory and the pandemic and vaccines and everything. And given this mass brainwashing around germ theory, I realized that I ha actually had to allow that fiction to exist in my fiction. Oh. I, I realized that if I were to write a book that uh, a fictional debunking or exposition of germ theory i would literally it would literally be the entire book <laughs> so i had to let that one just slide on through but you know yeah okay. otherwise i would have killed my book so yeah. when you're writing a fiction that's a that's a big deal you, you could get away with maybe adding length and exposition to a nonfiction work and then you then you're david wilcock you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> joke. Yeah. All right. Well, what else? What else have uh, we not covered? Have we missed anything that you feel like is you know germane or essential? Um, particularly around around the book or the the story it sort of speaks to. Well, I mean, there's there's so much that one could talk about. But how long have we been, have we been going? Um, I think we've gone. Well, we've just just passed an hour. Yeah, I mean, we're probably at a good stopping point for anyone just wanting to, uh, you know, think about what we said. And, and uh, you can you can go to my my website if you want me to get out that information for people who might want to read the excerpt or. Yeah, I mean, how do, how do people read the excerpt or make a pre-order? Right. Yeah. And the book is coming out. I don't know when this will go live. The, the book is coming out on the 20th of June. So that's two days from now, oh, three days from now, is that two days, yeah, three days from now. So the, the pre-order phase will be ending then, but, but uh, if you make it under the, under the wire there, that's great. Otherwise uh, it, it'll just be for sale on, on the website, which is crow, crow rising.com. Cool. Crow rising.com. Crow, crow rising There's a page, Cali, the destroyer. You'll see, you'll see how to get there. There's the pre-order there's the excerpt, there are reviews, there are some links to some interviews I've given. And, you know, you can certainly stay busy with that. You can also sign up for my newsletter. If you do that and you share Cali online, uh, at least uh, for now, um, uh, you can get a free copy of my last novel, which is Snooze, A Story of Awakening, a free e-copy. So that's an, that's an option. Cool. Brilliant. All right. Well, um as i just always. love you in your zen space there it's just i i like i like the feng shui of what you got going on the guitars are a nice touch thank you thank you people got... loved uh you know your your uh, 12 days of of, of uh, how the what is how the deep state stole christmas <laughs> yeah well that was a that was a collaborative effort between sol and i if, if you're not familiar with what sol's referring to we did a 12 days of yeah how the deep state stole christmas and it's on uh some bit shoot definitely and put it up there and youtube as well yeah well mine got taken down on youtube oh wow 
Could you believe that? They took it down, though it's just pure satire. Oh, Christmas satire at that. Christmas satire at that. And funny and well done. Yeah, I mean, ah. oh, well, they, they can find it on my BitChute channel, so head over there. Check yeah, it's it. on mine too, and I, I have a podcast, so I'll like my uncensored. You can find it all over the place. Cool, cool. All right, so, well, as, as always, mate, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure chatting. Absolutely. Maybe I can get you on my podcast one of these days. That sounds good. I'll try and squeeze in a, a few minutes <laughs> away, from, <laughs> away from you know who. <laughs> Eight minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Well, thanks for having me on and it's fun to catch up. You look really good. Um, I, I'm, I've been thinking about you a lot down there with all the craziness you guys have going on. I mean, you know, I'm in Florida, which is probably the freest place on the planet right now. So, uh, you know, I feel very fortunate. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So it's pretty good in Florida. Yeah, it's pretty much back to normal in most ways, but I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that it's going to stay that way. I know they they have many plans, but we'll we'll see where things go. We have a very uh, a very strong governor who's standing up to these thugs. Yeah, awesome. Well, that's really good to hear. While most drinking water looks the same, not all water is created equal. Discover how one machine can filter, charge and restructure regular tap water into five different types of water with over 60 different uses. Learn how you can nourish your body and detox your home from electrolyzed reduced water rich in molecular hydrogen and potent antioxidants for drinking to highly alkalized and oxidized waters replacing toxic cleaners and personal products in your kitchen, bathroom and laundry. To learn more about this life-changing water, visit brendandmurphy.com slash water. I've experienced censorship on no less than four different platforms so far, so if you'd like to help me get my work past the censors, please do subscribe and share it around for me. And also remember to join me on truth.network, which is the platform I created for our conscious community to connect and gather away from the censors after Facebook, Facebook shut down our page in 2018. So head over there, create your free account at truth.network, it's T-R-O-O-T-H, and I'll see you inside. Take care.